You're listening to the free preview episode of On Grief, a podcast about death by Karen Geyer. To unlock the full episodes, please visit patreon.com forward slash on grief pod. Memberships start at just $2 a month. This is On Grief, a podcast about death. to die is perhaps one of the most controversial topics of the modern era. We wouldn't even be talking about it if it weren't for some very important pioneers that began pushing the cause in the 1980s, including Dr. Kevorkian, and then later in the 90s with the publication of Final Exit, which is a book that detailed many ways that someone could take their right to die into their own hands. There's somebody that you may not have heard of. His name is Philip Nitschke. He's the founder of Exit International, which is a group that dedicates itself to educating patients, educating doctors, and most importantly, fighting the good fight for the right to die. Philip Nitschke is my guest today. Welcome, Philip. Philip, tell me, for lack of a better term, why the right to die is your passion. I'm not sure it's a passion. I believe that a person should have the right, a rational adult should have the the right and the ability to divest themselves of this precious gift of life if that is their wish. But for whatever reason, if it's a rational and informed decision, a person should have that ability. Now, to make that, to, to give effect to that right, then it's important that people know about what their choices are and what their options are. Sometimes that will be in the form of changing legislation. Uh, that allows uh, lawful assisted suicide from a medical professional. But often it's to do with a person taking this choice themselves in situations where a person may not be sick but have other reasons, perhaps social reasons, for wanting to end their life. Well, I think that they, these people need to have this right given effect to by given access to the best information and options available. What is the right to die and what are the most important parts of this movement in most countries of the world, suicide isn't actually a crime. You don't have to go back that far in time. Uh, you'll find situations where there were uh, lead legislative impediments to suicide. If you tried to suicide and failed, uh, that was uh, a breach of the law. And if you failed, uh, you could have some penalty visited upon you by the state. If you succeeded, you could even have some penalty, either by perhaps having your will overturned and your estate confiscated. So there's been these legal sanctions against suicide up until relatively recent uh, in uh, in human history. But in recent years, most countries have decriminalised the act of suicide, and that's certainly the case in the Netherlands, where I am now. It's the case of my home country, Australia. It's certainly the case in the US, where suicide itself is not a crime. Uh, but invariably, assisting a suicide is a crime. So they've got we've got this paradoxical situation where doing something which is lawful, that is ending your own life, if someone should assist you, that person does indeed commit a crime. And it's not just a trivial crime. It's usually accompanied by some pretty savage penalties. In other words, it's considered by society to be a very serious crime. So we've got the situation where, yes, you can go off and end your life, but any assistance is illegal. And that paradox 
given that many people provide that assistance in, uh, in as an act of compassion and love, often when a person is suffering from some difficult situation, some miserable medical malady, someone out of compassion and love helps them take this final step to put an end to their suffering and finds that they've committed this crime, which attracts in many countries 10 or so years imprisonment. So what we've seen in recent times sweep across the world, and I guess the Northern Territory of Australia was the world's first, where I was first, uh, where I first became exposed to this issue uh, back in 1996, an attempt made to make, uh, to, to get rid of that anomaly in the law. In other words, to make it legal, to make it lawful for a person to provide assistance to someone who wished to die, in other words, to assist their suicide. And what the uh, the Northern Territory did and what many countries that have followed, I mean, Oregon followed, Oregon in the US followed a year later in 1997. But uh, now there's a number of states of the US, of course, there's Canada, and of course, countries in Europe, like the Netherlands, where I am now, have changed their laws to make it legal for someone to provide assistance, provided you satisfy usually some quite strict requirements. In other words, uh, the laws is try to establish or codify the the set of conditions where a person can legally get help to take this step to end their life. And that's uh, we'll see that trend sweep across the world. I mean, it's happening in many countries now. The debate goes on. We're seeing the various states of America have this debate. States in Australia are now having it. We'll see Western Australia and Australia in Australia make these changes very soon. But they're usually along the same model, and that is a medical model. In other words, a person has to be sick. And they have to be sick enough to qualify, and that's usually assessed by some doctors. And if you're sick enough to uh, to establish your, uh, if you like, your eligibility, then the, you can be provided with this lawful option of assisted suicide. So there are a few problems with medicalization of the right to die. Notably, we know some of the rights that doctors have in the states, and they're could potentially be a problem that if you had, say, an evangelical doctor, they wouldn't agree to allow you dispensation. Yeah, that would be one example where, where you have uh, the people that are, in a sense, licensed to provide this assistance, simply being unwilling to comply with this newfound uh, option. But I suppose uh, one of the bigger issues that we see is that when people don't have medical conditions or don't have ones of sufficient severity, to, uh, to enable them to establish this eligibility so they don't quite qualify. Now, if that's the case, then again, you don't get this option. So whereas I'm being, I've been arguing for the fact that it should be a right to take this step, these medicalized pieces of legislation don't effectively give you the right. They really just give you the right to ask the question. It doesn't give you the right to have the answer provided. In other words, you still have to comply with what can be some pretty onerous requirements. And of course, we as an organisation, me as an individual, would like to see things uh, somewhat uh, structured somewhat differently than the, the changes we're seeing moving across the world. Another problem with medicalization seems to be that while if I have a diagnosable medical condition like cancer, there are blood tests that can indicate that I am in fact suffering from it. That's not necessarily the case with pain. You're asking a doctor to diagnose someone else's pain level, which is almost impossible. That's true. I mean, that, that of course, is almost impossible for another, a third party to quantify. But I suppose what the legislative models tend to do is usually define it in terms of a person's the severity of their illness, usually something along the lines of the fact that a person is terminally ill. In other words, is will be expected to die within a certain period of time. 
So in a sense, whether you've got pain or not is almost irrelevant, although not entirely, but you have to have some form of demonstrable pathology that was so, to, so that you can say with some clarity, or at least as the experts can, that you've got a limited life expectancy, and then you will qualify. It's almost as if, as a society, uh, we can just come at this idea, provided you're just about to drop dead, and we can we can almost uh, almost accept the idea of perhaps uh, pacing that process a little. But if you come along with, say, a social reason for wanting to die, none of these laws give any uh, give any um, chance of those people with those particular uh, uh, requirements and uh, reasons for their request having no requests accommodated. And we're seeing more and more of that now over the last 20 or so years I've been involved in this issue. We see more people coming along with what we would describe as non-medical reasons, very, very powerful social reasons, but certainly not ones which would in any way allow them to qualify for the medical models of legislative change we see around the world. When you say social situations, are you referring to the recent controversy that happened in the Netherlands where a teenager ended their life because of some very deep, severe traumas that they had experienced? Partially. I mean, obviously, there are social aspects to that, but it's still a medical condition. It may not be one that fits some neat diagnosis, but the fact is a person is suffering from some form of uh, what we would see as some sort of medical issue. I suppose a purely social reason would be something like... Uh, a situation we see quite commonly, or not commonly, but it's increasingly common. We don't see a lot of it, but we're seeing more now where one person of a partnership that's been in existence for a long time, where one party is dying, say from some serious illness, and the other party, that is the wife or the husband, who's been they've been together for some long time, that other person says, look, when my husband dies, I want to die with him. Now, that's a, that's a decision to end your life, even though you're not sick at all. Now, there's no way in which the uh, the models of medical the medical models that are coming into existence around the world can accommodate a person's request if that's the basis of that that move and I, I mean I've seen even even somewhat uh, hard, perhaps harder to understand situations a person who most affected my thinking on this issue was a woman who simply came to me and told me that she was dying in four years time and wanted some information on end-of-life drugs and when I I asked her what sort of a disease was it that she had? She said, I don't have any disease. It's just that in four years' time, I'll be 80, and 80 is the time to die. Now, I didn't believe her, and as the years went on, every time I saw her at a meeting or two that I was running in that period, the time got shorter and shorter. And then she kept saying, look, when are you going to answer my questions? And I said, look, her name was Lisette. She was a retired French academic working in Australia or retired in Australia. And I said, Lisette, uh, for goodness sake, you're not sick. Go on a world cruise, write a book. And she said, why don't you just mind your own business? This has got nothing to do with you. All I want from you, doctor, she sort of hissed at me, is, is technical information. You've got technical information about life and death, and I want it. What gives you the right to hold that information to yourself and dole it out to people that you think are eligible to receive it? You're setting yourself up as a judge and you're the worst example of insufferable medical paternalism. And I, I was uh, suitably mortified by that and, uh, and crump, promptly crumpled and gave her all the information she needed. And she ended her life when she was 80. And it, it, it got a lot of publicity at the time because this was in about 1998 or nine uh, in Australia. Uh, because people said, oh, look what's happened. The law came in in Australia briefly in 1996. And now we're seeing 
the inevitable slippery slide. In other words, one minute we're talking about very sick people getting help to die, and next thing we know, uh, organisations like this one, that is Exit, are helping well people to die. And I suppose what we were trying to say is, no, what we're doing is trying to respect the fact that this is a person's right. We may not agree with it, but we shouldn't sit around and set up conditions which other people have to comply with. And that's, in a sense, the argument I think the point she made is absolutely correct. We shouldn't be trying to set ourselves up as judge here. Other people make their mind up, and I think we should they have every need to we should have every obligation to respect it. There's probably no greater taboo in our society than ending your own life. How does that make your job that much harder? Well, it makes it because we've been uh, we've been saying for some time in our organization that we would think a society where every person has the ability, We've generally reserved this for elderly people because most of our members are in their 70s. When people join our organisation, we say, look, it's a very a good idea for every member of our organisation to have at their disposal in their, in their own cupboard, perhaps the means by which they could have a peaceful, reliable, elective death. In other words, go off and get your own end-of-life drugs. Make sure they're correct. Make sure that you can test them and that they're indeed the drugs that you need. Keep them safely stored so that if you should ever unfortunately get into that position where you want to take that step and die, you don't have to ask for assistance, and that would be a serious crime, uh, assisting a suicide in places where there's no legislation in place. But you can take the step lawfully yourself because you've acquired these drugs yourself. Now, as a strategy, that attracts some uh, some criticism uh, because people have argued that by talking like this and urging people to go off and get their own end-of-life drugs, that we're effectively condoning suicide. We're undermining, if you like, uh, attempts by some the campaigns that are running to try and reduce the suicide rate. And what I'm trying to say is, look, suicide amongst elderly people is not necessarily a bad thing. These are people who are, in a sense, given effect to this absolute important choice. And so the fact that they are successfully ending their life is something that we shouldn't try to we shouldn't try to disguise or try to reduce. Uh, now, that, of course, uh, is not a terribly popular argument where people say that all suicide is, in a sense, bad. And I'm trying to say that not all suicide is bad. In the late 90s, a controversial book was released called Final Exit, and it, in it there were clear options and clear instructions for those options for terminating one's own life. Originally, people were sort of confused as to who the heck would buy a book like that, but it became a multi, multi, multi bestseller. It has since been reprinted in over a dozen languages, and it has seen its share of multiple editions, including it is now available in a video, in an audiobook, DVD, you name it. So it looks like despite people's protestations, there is a huge appetite for this knowledge. Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I know Derek Humphrey quite well. Uh, and of course, he's the author of Final Exit. Uh, and uh, we first met in about 1997, 98, I think it was when I first came over to Oregon. And and met up with him after our law in Australia came and, and disappeared after a short time. But, I mean, he always he was indeed a uh, – uh, his work was pivotal. I mean, the fact that he was prepared to recognise that people have this craving and need to get access to the best information and was prepared to put it into an accessible form 
in the book that he wrote, I think was a pioneering act. And and so when uh, I when I followed up with the, our handbook, which is followed up with the idea of providing people with this sort of information, our book was dedicated to Derek because of the fact that he was a true pioneer and still is. I mean, he's still alive, of course, although he's a little frailer than he used to be. I invited him out here in last year for a, a gathering out here, but he can't travel that much. But I mean, no, what he did was was very important, and uh, and I don't I don't think it's been uh, I don't think people uh, don't realise that. I mean, he, he's a very he's a very famous figure in the right to die movement, and he should be because of what he was able to achieve. To unlock the rest of this episode and to hear more episodes, visit patreon.com forward slash on grief pod.